Amen. Good morning. It's good to see all of you this morning. Um, you know, uh, we've been in a, a series uh, called Forged by Grace, right? And one of the things that we've been talking about is what would churches look like if we were truly forged by, by grace? What would it look like if instead of just, you know, talking about grace, we actually lived gracious lives and shared the love of Christ, not just in word, but also in deed? Now here's, I've been around church long enough to see this play out over and over and over again, and maybe you have too. Maybe even if this is your first time in a church, you've probably seen this, that there is a very real temptation among church people to become prideful and fearful. And so instead of actually church people loving their neighbors, they adopt kind of a, an us versus them stance, right? That kind of mentality. And this, this um, misalignment between what we say and what we do, it just discredits us with, all lo- with loads of hypocrisy. It has become an unnecessary and un- unacceptable obstacle between our neighbors and Jesus. So we've been addressing that. And I think that if we're going to stay a healthy church, we should be addressing that temptation on a regular basis, right? It's so easy to lose our way. And one of the things that I invite uh, our our church to do all the time is if you see me losing my way, because better men than I have have really lost their way, ended up in the weeds, weeds and have done all kinds of damage. If you see me losing my way and becoming inconsistent with the message that we're proclaiming, you need to call me on it, okay? And if you don't, you don't love me, all right? And if that freaks you out, then just ask me nicely about it, and we'll have a chat, okay? But we got to make sure that we stay on track, that what we say and what we do line up, all right? It's something that we can do in grace and love for, e- for each other with gentleness and, and respect. we got to constantly be vigilant about that. So the temptation is, is a result, I think, uh, partly of exchanging uh, thoughtful, genuine, life-changing faith focused on the truth, the facts of who Jesus is and what he's done, exchanging that for a blind faith that does not see the Jesus of the Bible or act as if Jesus is their king. Or if he is their king and they say he's their king, he's a king made in their own image, which is idolatry, right? Now, to get us started this morning, uh, on Palm Sunday, let me say this. Christianity absolutely, definitely requires faith, but it's not a blind faith. It is a faith that is built on historical, verifiable facts about Jesus. And it's critical to examine those facts and evaluate those facts, that the truth about, about Jesus. Now, without God intervening, without him opening our eyes and opening our, our hearts, we're inclined to reject those facts, to reject that truth. But the facts are still there. 
And that raises a question. And the question is, how do we know which facts are important? Well, the Apostle John helps us with that. He was an eyewitness um, to the life of Jesus and of all of the apostles, of all of them, he seems to have the closest relationship to Jesus. So he had a ton of information on Jesus. And he wrote a book, Gospel of John. It is 21 chapters long. And, and about half of that really long book, he devotes to just four days in Jesus' life. That was Palm Sunday. Uh, Monday, Thursday, which is the night of the Last Supper when Jesus uh, uh, washed his disciples' feet, Good Friday, and Easter Sunday. Half of a really long book is dedicated to those four days. And this passage that was read is the story about what is known as Palm Sunday. This story that we read is a story about Jesus' triumphal entrance into uh, Jerusalem. And John is, is highlighting two very critical points about Jesus that we're going to discuss this morning. Now, if you grew up in church, how many, I mean, how many of you have heard about Palm Sunday before? Right? Most of you. And, and if you're familiar with it, um, you might be a little too used to this story. Right? Um, it's so much more than, you know, palm leaves. And, I mean, it is, if you look at it, and we will, you'll see that it doesn't make sense. If you were alive then, this story would have just totally confused you because Jesus rides in on a donkey. What are, they suppo what are kings supposed to ride? War horses, right? Who rides donkeys? They are humble servants. But here, John is highlighting this, this event of our king, the Messiah, the promised deliverer, making his, his grand entrance. This is when he steps out on the stage to declare that he is king, and he's riding a ridiculous donkey. And John, Jesus, through John, is giving us a picture of the heart of Christianity. So, I said we have two critical facts that we're going to look at. And the first one, if you're taking notes, is this, that Jesus is the king, okay? Now, it is, it's kind of, I mean, if you're familiar with the story and, and you're wondering about how this all played out, it's kind of easy to imagine uh, that, that this Palm Sunday deal surprised Jesus. Like he was just minding his own business, strolling into Jerusalem, and then all of a sudden this crowd comes out of nowhere, you know, shouting like, like, like a flash mob, and they're saying, you know, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel. And Jesus blushes and says, oh, shucks, guys, you shouldn't have. But okay, since you went to all this trouble, I'll go along with it. That is not how it happened. Not at all. Jesus is in total control. He knows exactly what's going to happen. You know why? Because he planned it. Jesus shows up with absolute authority. He enters Jerusalem, the city of God, claiming to be the king of Israel, the true ruler of Israel. This right here, what Jesus is doing, is an in-your-face confrontation. Has anybody told you about that? 
when it came to Palm Sunday? That's what's going on here. Now, if we, we will see this if we look at the context. Because earlier in this book, in John chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Remember that? And all kinds of people were just blown away. And, and the word spread. And, and, and so many people put their faith in Jesus because of this amazing miracle. And then word gets back to the religious leaders. The religious authorities. And they call an emergency meeting. And in verse 48, look what they say. They say, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in this Jesus, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now, the people of God, they longed for a Messiah. They longed for a deliverer. I mean, all kinds of prophecy was written about. And so they were looking forward to and and. You know, they wanted this deliverer to show up and deliver them from the evil Roman Empire who have been oppressing them. And the religious leaders thought, there is no way that the deliverer that we're waiting for is this Jesus guy. There's no way. So they're afraid that all these people who are are super stoked about Jesus and what he's doing, that they're going to rise up around Jesus and start a rebellion. And then the Roman army, they're going to step in and crush the rebellion, remove the religious leaders from their position of, of leadership, dismantle the nation of Israel because the religious leaders failed to keep things under control and to keep the people in line. So they're scared. What are they going to do? The next verse says this. Then one of the religious leaders named Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, spoke up and says, you know nothing at all. You do not realize. Now listen to what he says right here. He says, you do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. What's kind of crazy here, this man who hates Jesus is actually uh, unwittingly declaring the gospel, right? It is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. And the text goes on to say that from that day on, the religious leaders all conspired to take Jesus out, to get him killed. So Jesus hides out. He hides in a remote village called Ephraim. Is he God the Son or not? Why is he acting like a scaredy cat and hiding out in the wilderness? Was he scared? No. So why was he hiding? It was not the right time, and timing was critical. Jesus keeps his cool, and he waits until right before the Passover. I mean, crowds of people were streaming into Jerusalem for this Passover feast, and and they're all looking for this guy, Jesus, who miraculously raised Lazarus from the dead. They want to get a look at him and and find out what what he's about. And so they're all all coming in looking for, for Jesus, and the leaders of Israel gave orders to everybody that they could that if anyone found out where Jesus was, They should report it so they can go arrest him. Jesus knows this. He knows that people are out to get him. And it's at this time that he decides to leave the wilderness and make his grand entrance into Jerusalem. 
So what we see happening here is that Jesus is calling the shots. I mean, he is setting this up on his own terms. He is forcing their hand. And when Jesus shows up, he is basically saying, here I am. What are you going to do? Crown me or kill me? It is an in-your-face confrontation. He is forcing their hand. Here I am. What are you going to do? You know, there are a lot of people, a lot of people, who turn to Jesus and, and they pray, Jesus, help me. Uh, Jesus, guide me, protect me, comfort me in my loss. Give me courage to face the future, more joy and fulfillment in life. Free me from my, my loneliness. Give me peace in the midst of, of stress. Improve my relationships. Get me through, you know, this, this horrible situation. Give me wisdom to handle this problem. And you know what? That is good. He's exactly the person that we should turn to in our time of need. But Jesus says, listen, I can do all of that and so much more. You have no idea. He says, I can be your shepherd. I can be your protector. I can be your friend. I could be your, your strength. I could be your, your priest, but I will not be any of those things to you unless I am also your king. We usually want a God that's just there to kind of help us. Not confront us, right? Jesus says, if you want me to come into your life, you must surrender all of your rights, surrender all of your claims, surrender all of your, your preferences, surrender all of your privileges to me. Crown me or kill me. And some of us, you know what, life gets... We live in a broken world, and so life has a tendency to fall apart sometimes, and, and very often, actually. And, and we say, you know what, I tried Christianity, but it's not really working for me. Life is still hard. You know, I came to Jesus to make my life better, happier, more fulfilling, but, but, but I'm just, just too disillusioned by it right now because it's just not working. <sighs> of course it's not working. Jesus will not come into our life at all unless he comes into our life as king, right? The way, here's, here's how you can know if Jesus is your king, right? You know that Jesus has come into your life as, a king, as king if you don't just obey him when he tells you to do something we already want to do. Like, I was going to do that anyway. This is easy. No, we know he's, he's king in our life when we obey when he contradicts what we want to do. Here's the thing. I don't have a king if, I, if, if the king can't contradict me. In that case, he's not king. I'm making myself king. I'm the one who calls a shot. I'm the, I'm the one who says what's What's, what's right and wrong. So basically what we're effectively doing is we will either crown him as king or, or we'll kill him and make ourselves king. There are no other options than those two options. He is either our king or he is dead to us. No other two options. 
John says, critical fact number one, Jesus is the king. But then secondly, Jesus is a king on a donkey. All right, so can you imagine how the disciples must have reacted to this? I mean, Jesus rides in, and the people in verse 31, I mean, they're all shouting. I mean, these crowds of people, they're shouting, blessed is the king of of Israel. And the disciples must have thought, you know what? This is it. I mean, this is so exciting. I mean, he's finally making his move after all of this time and after all of the prophecies. He He will finally be crowned king, and he will overthrow those horrible Romans who've been oppressing us, and he's going to set us free. This is what we've been waiting for, but I think we need to talk to him about the donkey. I mean, if he's going to be our king, we got to get him a better ride. He needs some serious PR work to get some credibility. Can't be riding in on that thing. That donkey's got to go. But wait, was the donkey like the only thing around that he could ride in on? You know, it was Jesus like, I kind of asked for a war horse. I mean, that's what I reserved, but what, I guess I'll use the donkey. No, he deliberately chose the donkey. What does a, what does a king normally ride? Something that looks more like that, right? That's impressive. I want to follow that guy. That makes more sense. Compared to a war horse, a donkey's a humble animal, right? It's a, it's a lowly servant ride. So, yes, Jesus rides a donkey because he comes to us in humility as a servant king. But it's more than that. we got to look at the big picture. Now, you need to know that the Bible's not a collection of moralistic lessons or, or, or just a handbook or some interesting principles that you may or may not uh, apply. You need to know that the scriptures, from the beginning all the way to the end, from cover to cover, is one story. There's an overarching story of rede- called redemptive history. It is the story of redemption. It's a story of salvation. And the story opens with Adam and Eve living in paradise, Life as it was meant to be with with God as as their king. It was perfect. It was everything anyone could ever hope for and more. And God gives Adam and Eve one command, and it was real simple. He says, you can have anything you want. You can do anything you want. Just don't eat the fruit of that one tree. And guess what? There was nothing wrong with that fruit. It wasn't poisonous. It wasn't like a magic, like a bad magic tree or something like that. It was a test. Would they bow to the king? Would they submit to his authority even when they didn't understand why? You know what? So often we decide what we will do and not do based on whether we understand it or not. Well, God's telling me that I should do this or I shouldn't shouldn't do that. I don't really understand it, so... I'm going to ignore that, and I'm going to do what I want. It is so common. It is incredibly common. So, we all know what happened. They did what they want, rejected his authority. They decided to be their own king. 
They decided that they were going to decide what was right and wrong. And that's what sin is, you know. It is putting ourselves in the place of the king. And I'm telling you, all of the problems in the world throughout history, the past and the future, all of our problems are a result of that. From, from worrying to terrorism, it is all a result of putting ourselves in the place of the king. Now, here's the deal. The story could have ended right there with Adam and Eve dead under the tree. But it doesn't. Why? Well, the only reason the Bible doesn't end right there, the only reason that the human history doesn't end right there is because God intervened with a promise. He promised to send a deliverer. He promised to send the Messiah who would crush evil, who would crush death, who would set us free through his suffering. And he makes that, that, that promise shortly after in Genesis 3.15. And the rest of the story and the rest of history is all about God fulfilling that promise. It is all about the arrival of this deliverer that we've been longing for. What's that got to do with a donkey? Everything. Later in that same book, Genesis 49 says, The king's scepter will not depart from Judah until the obedience of the nation shall be his. And how do we identify uh, the, the king? The next verse says, He will tether his donkey to a vine. And God is saying, that this promise delivered, the Messiah, that the king will be identified by the fact that he rides in on a donkey. And then near the end of the Old Testament, Zechariah 9, read it. It's amazing. It'll blow you mind, your mind. It tells us that this messianic king that we've been longing for will put an end to all war. He will proclaim peace to all the nations. He will set all of his people free, and he will restore us all to life the way that it was meant to be. And how do we recognize this promised deliverer? Verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. So when he rides into Jerusalem, he's claiming to be this prophesied promise, deliver the Messianic king, and the religious leaders hate him for it. They hate him. So is this donkey, is it all about humility? Is it all about serving? That's important, but it's more than that. Like me, donkeys, are slow, short, and awkward. <laughs> what happens to a king who rides into battle on a donkey? He dies, right? And that's the point. Jesus rides in on a donkey because he, he rode in to die. Why? Because it was the only way for our deliverer to deliver us. That was the plan from Genesis 3. 
The only way to deliver us from the real enemy of evil, the only way to, to, to deliver us from death and eternal judgment and to restore us to life the way that it was meant to be, the only way is for the king to die in our place. Sin is putting ourselves in the place of the king. Salvation is the king putting himself in the place of us. You know what? We all should have died with Adam and Eve under the tree. Not even exist, right? But Jesus came to die on the tree for us. So he rides in on a donkey, and he's basically saying, crown me or kill me. (laughs) On Palm Sunday, people are shouting, Blessed is the king, the king of Israel. And then just a, little, just a little while later, that following Friday, what did they shout? That's right. From hails the king to crucify him. And Pilate asked, shall I crucify your king? And they answered, we have no king but Caesar. And so Jesus was crowned with thorns, nailed to the cross, and there, The King Jesus died. He died in shame. He died alone. But listen, he died in your place. For you and for me. Our sin of putting ourselves in the place of the King. And so he had to put himself in the place of us. Jesus did this out of love for the Father and for you. I, you don't even fully understand how critical that is, how much he actually loves you. This is why the, this is why the Apostle Paul says this. God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is going to be a day. There is a day coming when every single person who ever lived will acknowledge the facts about Jesus, that he is king who died so that his people can live. There will be people who reject him and people who have crowned him. And the people who reject him in this life, those who ignored him or just said that he was just some good guy, kind of a guideline, a good example, uh, they, they will weep and gnash their teeth for eternity and just cry out with regret. He really is who he said he was. He really is the king. And I did not crown him. I rejected him. I did not bow to his rule. And they will experience the agony of eternal regret. But those who do crown him as king in this life, when he returns, they will erupt in praise and adoration. This... This is not them just submitting to an oppressive king because they feel like they, 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 I don't know, they deserve that. Or, or They're rejoicing. They're praising God. 
And we will sing his praises. And we will sing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. And then all things will be set right. Paradise will be ushered in in its, compl- in its completeness. This is the great hope, the great promise that we have. This is what we have to look forward to. And I'm telling you, that hope is not just wishful thinking. That hope is a promise. And when you believe in that promise of the future, it changes the way that you live today. It changes your beliefs right now. It changes your heart. It changes the way you view God and the way that you view other people and the way that you treat other people. Now, I'm going to throw a few of those things at you so you can see the fruit of this, right? First of all, uh, this next point is as our king, he changes us, okay? And here's how. First, he gives us an upside-down view of greatness, The king on a donkey shows us that the way up is down. The way to be great is to serve. The way to win is to lose. We won't feel like we need to, you know, succeed at any cost, and we won't be paralyzed by fear. We will take risks for Jesus and not be crushed by what other people think of us. In the grand scheme of things, you realize it doesn't matter. And as our king, also, he gives us a heart and a life filled with humility and confidence. Weird combination, but both grow in your heart. Here's the deal. We're talking at the beginning about pride and fear. Pride and fear creeps into our hearts and just mess everything up. When when, When we crown the king on a donkey... What happens is he gives us this strange combination of humility and confidence that Jesus had. And what that means for you is that no matter how successful you are, how great you are, how accomplished you are, how good-looking you are, how much money you have, no, no matter how impressive you are in the world's eyes, you'll be humble because you know it's all a grace. And you know it's all a grace because you know our king had to die for us. And no matter how lowly you might be in the world's eyes, you'll be confident, filled with confidence, because you know it's all of grace. And the king was glad to die for you. And then here's another change. He sets us free to truly serve people. You know what? A lot of times our serving is less about serving Others and more about serving our, ourselves. We, we serve to ease our guilt or, or to get approval. And when our service gets rejected or our service goes unnoticed, we don't get credit or, or not serving where we want to serve or whatever, we get angry and crushed because it's about us instead of the people that we should be serving, instead of glorifying God with that. But when we bow to a king on a donkey, our guilt is removed and we get God's approval. Why do we need anybody else's? So we're free to serve people out of gratitude to the Lord. And next is our king. He leads us to start loving people we never loved before. Maybe 
you're intimidated by rich people or smart people or popular people. Um, maybe, you, on the other hand, you feel self-conscious and insecure and you feel like a loser. Either way, it becomes really difficult to love other people. You know, if you feel superior, I mean, and then you help someone, it's usually because you think you're better than they are. I, awesome me, I'm here to help you, loser. Right? But to the extent we bow before a crucified king, we know that it's all of grace. Both the rich and the poor, the smart, the not so smart, man, we all need grace. We're all sinners in need of a savior. And you can be sons and daughters of the king through faith in Jesus. The last thing I'll mention is this. Y'all know we live in a broken world, right? And we know it and see it more than ever with the access we have to news all around the world, the horrible atrocities that are happening everywhere and in your own life. But when we crown Jesus as our king, he enables us to face suffering and hard times with absolute courage. Usually what happens when, when our life falls apart, we get angry with God and we say, I don't deserve this, right? Or we get angry with ourselves. I do deserve this, what so God is punishing me. But here's the deal. When you crown Jesus as king, you don't get angry with God because we know that he hates suffering more than, than you do. And he was willing to die so that suffering would one day come to an end. And you don't get angry with yourself because you know that God is not punishing you. He already punished your sin once and for all time in Jesus on the cross. That's our hope, right? Now, do we believe that? If we do, it'll change the way that we live. So there you go. Two critical facts about Jesus. He is the king, and he comes to us on a donkey. Seems like a contradiction, but it is the heart of the Bible's message. King shows up on a donkey because he came to die in our place. You and I have sinned. Um, we put ourselves in the place of the king. God's grace enables us to be honest about that. And the king has come to save us by putting himself in our place. On the cross, he got what we deserved so that we might get what King Jesus, our perfect King Jesus, deserves. He died to deliver us from evil, death, and eternal judgment so that we could live with him forever. Life as it was meant to be. And now he says to us, crown me or kill me. Let's crown him. Amen? Amen. Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your amazing grace, your life-transforming, life-giving grace. God, it is my prayer 
that you would show us all the different ways where, where we refuse to, to crown you and all the different ways we, we crown our, ourselves, where we decide what's right for us, regardless of, of what, what you, you say. God, we thank you that you call us to crown you king of kings. Not because you have some weird ego trip, but because it is the best life for us. The best thing for us. The most blessed life. Knowing that if we have nothing, if we lose it all, but we have Jesus, we have everything. And if we have everything we could possibly want in this world, but don't have Jesus, we have nothing. We settle all the time. Show us, Lord, where we settle. And God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see. You high and lifted up, glorious, our perfect, loving King who wants the best for his people and secured it by giving up his life for us. God, help us to believe that more this morning and that we might become more like Jesus. And God, I pray that you would show us in our lives where our lives don't line up with Jesus' life. And we pray that you would contradict us. Lovingly, graciously give us a diagnosis of where our lives don't line up with you. Cure us of our denial. Help us to confess freely, without any hesitation. Freely confess our sin, knowing that, that you are gracious. That you've already punished our sin on the cross. And that there is no more punishment for us who are in Christ. God, I pray if there's anybody here who has never um, trusted you that that you would give them a, a greater understanding this morning. That you would give them the gift of faith. That you would give them the courage uh, to seek you. We pray for that because we know that you're the one who seeks. We pray these things in your name.